The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five, down 300. Look at that. Dow futures sinking as stocks just broke a weekly win streak. We'll tell you what's behind the move. Oil also down, even as OPEC comes together in a last-minute Sunday meeting to reach a production deal all following that high-profile collapse of negotiations. Breaking news, as Bill Ackman's SPAC announces it is dropping its bid for the label, music like Superstars, Taylor Swift, and Lady Gaga. It's the White House versus Facebook, caught in a war of words, with the president accusing Facebook of, quote, killing people on vaccine misinformation and crashing lumber prices, providing little relief for home builders we gear up for the latest gauge on the still red-hot real estate sector. It is Monday, July 19th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Oh, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for starting your week with us here on Worldwide Exchange. And I normally say something like, hey, happy Monday. I mean, why not? It's Monday, but it's looking like it could be a rough one for your money and investments to start the week. Look at that. Dow futures, they are down big off 360 points right now, really taking a turn lower in the last 15 minutes or so. I mean, you checked the Dow futures on CNBC.com about 30 minutes ago. They were down a tick, not much. Suddenly, we are seeing a big drop off. Not exactly, I'll be perfectly blunt, not exactly sure why we are seeing this major turn down, but we're certainly going to talk more about it as the morning goes on. All this, the stock's coming off their first negative week in a month. The NASDAQ posting its worst week since May, You do have inflation fears rearing their head once again around data as well. You've got some new lockdown and COVID concerns around some of the variants, too. We're going to find out what it all means. Either way, it is moving bonds as well. And as stocks go down, the yield on the 10-year actually continues to drop as well. 10-year yield is at 1.26%. I guess if you want to find some silver lining, maybe a little bit of good news for any of you out there trying to find a mortgage because rates should see some softening as that yield has come down. All right, well, it is not just stocks and futures headlining the news to begin your week. There is a lot more going on, including what they are calling Freedom Day in the UK. Who better to bring you all of it than Contessa Brewer this Monday morning? Contessa, good morning. Good morning to you, Brian. And we're starting with some breaking news here overnight. It involves Bill Ackman's SPAC, Pershing Square. It is dropping the deal to buy 10 percent of Vivendi's Universal Music Group. Pershing revealed its board has unanimously decided not to proceed with the purchase after discussions with the SEC. But Pershing says Vivendi is not being left at the altar, reiterating it still intends to become a long-term shareholder of Universal after its public listing on the Euronext Amsterdam in September. Don't miss Bill Ackman on Squawk Box later this morning. That's at 8 Eastern. 
The Biden administration is doubling down on its criticism against social media companies and the way they handle vaccine misinformation. In an interview yesterday, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy says companies have fueled false narratives about the safety and effectiveness of the jabs. President Biden last week insisted platforms like Facebook are killing people by allowing misinformation on their services. Facebook pushed back over the weekend and then added a counterpunch saying, look, it's not the reason the Biden administration has missed its vaccination goals. And England is entering a new phase of the pandemic. Starting today, almost all virus restrictions are being lifted despite a spike in COVID cases due to the Delta variant. Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his top finance official right now are self-isolating because they had contact with a cabinet member who tested positive for the virus. So we've got some conflicting push and pull trends going on in the UK, Brian. And 150,000 screaming fans at the British Formula One race at Silverstone yesterday as well. So, yeah, there's certainly a lot. When you look at it, Contessa, you hear one thing, you see another. It can be confusing. We'll see in a few minutes, Contessa. Thank you. Okay. All right, right now, let's get to the markets and your money because suddenly what could have been a sleepy summer Monday is now looking like anything but. You've got Dow futures down over 300 points right now, perhaps on concern about some of the new lockdowns maybe in parts of the U.S. like California and the world, the Delta variant, et cetera. All this ahead of another big week in earnings out this week, you got names like IBM, United Airlines, Chipotle, Netflix, Intel. Look at that. It is another busy slate. Let's talk about all of it together and get a view on the trading week ahead and bring in Josh Wine. He is portfolio manager at Hennessy Funds. Josh, pleasure to have you back on again. I mean, I wish it was a different story with the futures as well. Uh, I, you're, you're a long-term macro guy. I get it. But just off the top of your head, <laughs> any clues to why suddenly Dow futures are off 300 to start the week? Is there anything sort of screaming at you in the headlines? There's nothing screaming at me, but I think what's, you know, there's definitely the whisper or the, the, the loud whisper of, you know, the Delta variant. And, and so it's not bullish for growth and certainly not here, but more so overseas. And I think we had the weekend to, to mull that over. And the reaction in the bond market is, is, you know, is quite apparent. So the bond market's telling us that growth is going to moderate. It'll still be above trend. Uh, as we would expect with the reopening here and elsewhere. But yeah, the bond market says it all. We're a little bit slower growth. We borrowed some growth from future quarters. Yeah, I mean, and- I guess is it saying, it, Josh, is there a risk to at least a temporary reopening in parts of the U.S. or the world? That would seem to be the one thing that that is kind of out there as concerns grow over some of these variants. Right, yeah. I mean, I think that we, we kind of, you know, put the cart before the horse. So I think in this country, it's been a great story of reopening. And, and we're seeing that, you know, we're not done yet. And, you know, the Russell 2000 off maybe six or 7% this month has told a story of, you know, you know, a little bit of a, a moderation in growth. And so, you know, we'll see what that means for inflation. But yeah, I think there's really no new news in my mind today. But, uh, you know, the weekend maybe didn't help people too much time to think. Well, yeah, I mean, listen, we've got to be careful. You've got case counts on the rise, hospitalizations in certain areas. But, of course, we do know the stats. And let's be honest about it. If you are vaccinated, then you are not quite 100% protected. But certainly the numbers have been very, very solid, particularly against symptomatic or severe illness. So that is the good news on that front. And let us not forget that. Outside of that, 
We will reopen fully at some point if we have not already. And you're going to buy stocks now for then. Uh, I mean, if we see a down move in markets, I would assume you're a buyer. Because I know from reading your work and the last time we talked that you are long-term bullish. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that the 10,000-foot view is that, you know, the the S&P, the Russell 2000, you know, at 20 times forward earnings, you know, a 5% earnings yield in a backdrop of one and a quarter on the 10-year. So that that spread is incredibly compelling. It's been compelling now for a while. And that spread is where we were before the pandemic started. So yes, we're long-term. We're not going to, you know, react or overreact. Uh, You know, I think the the backdrop remains quite positive. And so, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Is there a certain part of the market that you find more valuable right now, maybe slightly undervalued or more to your liking, or is it really just stock here, stock there, stock pickers market? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always a stock pickers market. I would though look at mid caps. So I think that, you know, growth overseas is, you know, a bit delayed from where we thought it might be, you know, several months back when vaccines were rolling out. And so we would look at mid caps, you know, having a a very tough month. Uh, As I mentioned, about a 5% earnings yield. I think the backdrop is, you know, a little bit more exposure to U.S. revenue streams in the mid cap space, uh, which could be a positive, especially in this environment as we're looking to get things open on a global basis. Uh, And also, I would just point out, you know, about $7 trillion in cash on the balance sheets of the S&P 500. So certainly the idea of M&A becoming more of a thing, you know, getting more of these merger Mondays. Uh, we saw Zoom making a deal today, but we don't really see a ton of M&A activity when we wake up Monday morning. It's not like what it used to be. Uh, and then also, you know, private equity, the financial buyers, uh, about $1.6 trillion on their balance sheets. So, you know, I think that mid caps sit in this nice area where they make attractive acquisition candidates, perhaps fly under the radar of antitrust. Uh, which is becoming a bigger thing in this administration. So, yeah, I would look at mid-caps. I would look at companies like Meritage Homes, uh, Mattel, as we near Christmas in about six months or five months. Uh, You know, very attractive valuations. Meritage Homes and Mattel, and a great point, by the way, about some of these big-cap tech stocks, which the market seems to be kind of ignoring regulatory risk, although maybe not today. Maybe that certainly is a part of this. Josh, we really appreciate you coming on to kick off the week. Thank you. Best to you. We'll see you soon. All right. Well, there is so much ahead on this busy Monday, including OPEC. Can the group really keep together and control prices, or will the U.S. start ramping production again? Halima Croft is here. Plus, the China threat. Beijing threatening retaliation over Washington's latest sanctions on Hong Kong. And then there is some Merger Monday action. Josh just talked about it briefly. Zoom shelling out billions to move beyond video conferencing. We'll tell you who they are buying for a really big number. Dow Futures off 330. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. 
impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. All right, getting a live look at a pretty rainy Hong Kong as they wrap up the first day to end their world week. Look at that cloud layer. Gosh, you can barely see the, the mountain in the background as well. Either way, we're going to get more on some growing tensions, perhaps, with Hong Kong and China in just a minute. Well, in fact, let's talk about it right now. In fact, that is that growing tension between the Biden administration and Beijing, with the White House now sending a warning to the American business community about the increased risks of operating in and around Hong Kong. It is the latest move in a precarious relationship, one that could impact U.S. business directly as well as our relationship with China. Let's talk more now about it and bring in DeWardrick McNeil, Managing Director and Senior Policy Analyst at Longview Global, also a CNBC contributor. DeWardrick, thank you for coming on this morning, uh, because this could be playing into what we're seeing with the markets right now. I mean, Who knows? How would you characterize the state of U.S.-China relations right now? Thanks for having me, Brian. Listen, we are witnessing what it means to be in a real battle for dominance. And it is having a whole of society impact, especially a societal impact on how businesses can transact uh, in cross-border relationships. I'll tell you, the tech sector, unlike any other sector, and the knowledge-based economy is squarely in the targets of both countries looking to try and cement their dominance, continue to build, grow, innovate, and protect their technology sector. And, Brian, it will impact every aspect of how you do business, where you do business, and what you can invest in as a business. Well, it feels, DeWardrick, like that's going to be the great tech wall of China, if you will, right? I mean, I, I feel like there's almost two internets that are being built, if not already built, around the world, which is China, which has its own controls, largely its own com- companies. You know, there's, there's no Twitter, there's no Google, and then you've got the rest of the world. Do you see that just getting worse, or is there something that our administration, their administration can do to bring those together, or do we even need to do that? That's a good question, Brian. Look, I've been saying for a while now that the relationship right now, which is really based on a strategic mistrust of the intentions of the other, really needs a mechanism for managing us through this turbulence. What you raised about the Internet, I think, look, many people fear that we may be heading towards a balkanized Internet, a China-based ecosystem and a West or U.S.-based ecosystem. And this is not good for anyone. And I suspect this is going to be one of the key things that we try and discuss when we can get that dialogue mechanism in place. And it matters because for years, and you're a longtime senior policy and, and, and official around the world, we talked forever in the markets about, well, it's, don't worry, because we're going we're gonna to have access to a billion Chinese consumers that are growing toward an upper class and a middle class, and their purchasing power and their buying power is going to provide the next leg up for U.S. companies. 
There are many doing well. General Motors, for example, selling more cars in China than they do here. But outside of that, DeWardrick, it is looking increasingly unlikely that U.S. companies are going to have access to a lot of those consumers, which we talked about for a long time. I think you're right. Hey, listen, I think it's important to note that we want our businesses to do well, but China has its own businesses and China wants its businesses to do well, particularly in the Chinese market, but increasingly even in third markets that compete with the U.S. So I think if you had a long-term assumption that you were going to dominate the Chinese market as a Western company, particularly as a tech or knowledge-based company, I think it's time to readjust some of those assumptions, Brian. What we're seeing is that there is a battle in China to become less dependent on Western companies, Western investment, Western technology, and the Chinese want to really amplify its own, own businesses in its home market. So, yes, I think some companies will do well. I hope they will do well yeah. in China. But a 30-year plan to dominate the Chinese market is not good in this strategic environment. It's not going to happen. And what's not going to happen in the near term, at least as far as, far as I know, DeWardrick, is some sort of big in-person sit-down between President Xi and President Biden, where we can see, you know, the, the glad handling and the handshaking. Not right now. It's just a bunch of war words that seems to be escalating. DeWardrick McNeil, it's a real pleasure to have you on this morning. DeWardrick, big topic. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Brian. All right. Oh, you're welcome. Now to the news that broke from OPEC Sunday morning. The group holding a rather sudden last-minute meeting and was able to secure a new deal to raise oil production from its member countries and the OPEC Plus group. That meeting was a continuation of the meeting that began all the way back on July 1st, but was scuttled after a few days as most of OPEC and the UAE simply could not agree on some new baseline production numbers. Well, now they have agreed to boost production by 400,000 barrels per day beginning next month and allowing the UAE and four other nations to raise their baseline production numbers next spring. Now, the production increase won't likely impact oil prices that much, but this deal was about more than that. It was about OPEC showing it is holding together. We were on that Sunday morning press conference, and I asked Saudi Energy Minister Abdulaziz bin Salman about what the deal might mean for the group. I am a believer of OPEC Plus, so as everybody, uh, Sahel just sh shared with you a few thoughts. OPEC Plus is here to stay. Uh, we have been, and there is nothing uh, that can be better to demonstrate how effective this uh, setup has been, not only within the benefit of the member states, but also to the other producers other consumers, and more also the industry. Now, it wasn't just from the Saudi side. There were, of course, real concerns about OPEC fracturing if the United Arab Emirates left the group. But that is not going to happen, as evidenced by the UAE's minister appearance on the press conference and answering a question about their commitment to OPEC as well. UAE is a committed member believe that is our duty and at the same time we Saudi Arabia and all of the countries many countries have have their own initiatives toward the transition toward renewable energy now on the back of all of this oil prices they are down this morning a couple of bucks retreating perhaps 
On global growth concerns due to the rise of COVID variants in countries like Indonesia and elsewhere, that is something OPEC and its allies have talked a lot about as they look to add barrels gradually to the market. We are seeing crude oil back under 70 in the U.S. The next meeting is September 1st, but for now, OPEC does appear to be holding strong. All right, we'll get more with Halima Croft on that in just a couple of minutes. But right now, is this a bridge too far? The Democrats working on that massive infrastructure bill, but parts of Congress pulling the plug on one proposal to help pay for it all. We are back in a moment. Dow futures off 342, oil below 70, cryptos down as well. Sun is coming up. I guess there's that. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back. We're going to get more on the markets and your money in just a moment. But we got to get a check on some of this morning's other top global headlines, including more devastation from absolutely terrible flooding in many parts of Europe. NBC's Philip Menes in New York with that and more. Philip. Hey, Brian. Good morning. Yeah, a cleanup and recovery effort are underway in Germany, where more than 180 people have died in historic floods. The area was hit with about three months worth of rain in just 24 hours, causing the worst flooding in more than half a century. Neighbors and strangers working together to try and clear out the debris as rescuers search for the hundreds more that are still missing. We're just days away from the start of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, but there are already signs of trouble on the world's biggest sports stage. At least three athletes have tested positive for COVID-19. One of them, 17-year-old American tennis star Coco Gauff, who has now dropped out of the games. And a final round rally at the Open in Great Britain brought one young American back to championship status. Colin Morikawa did not bogey once on Sunday, ending the tournament at 15 under par and securing the Open championship. It's the 24-year-old's second major victory in just eight appearances in golf's Grand Slams. He won the PGA Championship last year, but no spectators were in attendance. So, Brian, this time he got to lift the Claret Jug and hear the roar of the crowd as well. Yeah, full stands there as well as at the Formula One race in uh, Silverstone, England as well. Yeah. So uh, the fans, certainly they are back. Congratulations to Colin Morikawa. Not a bad payday either. He should watch CNBC to help with the finances. Philip, thank you very much. All Appreciate right, it. Mm-hmm. All right. On deck, RBC Capital's Halima Croft is here to lay out the key takeaways from that Sunday surprise OPEC Plus meeting and more oil being put onto the markets Talk more about all that with Lima coming up. Dow Futures down 300 oil, back below 70. We're back right after this. A weak start to the week. Futures sinking more than 300. Tech stocks down as well as rising tensions with China and rising concerns about new global COVID lockdowns spooking the market. Oil back under 70. Even as OPEC comes together over the weekend to show its solidarity, Lee McCroft is up next to make sense of it all. And here you go, the return of the mask mandate as Los Angeles area residents and businesses grapple with the renewed orders amid rising COVID case numbers. It is Monday, July 19th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Oh, welcome or welcome back and good Monday morning, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Thank you for joining us here on Worldwide Exchange, and I wish... We had some better news to begin your week, but there is, as you can see on your screen there, in that bright red in the bottom corner, pretty big drop in futures right now. Dow futures down over 300, just under 1%. Tech faring a little bit better. NASDAQ futures down about four-tenths of a percent. All of this 
as we come off our first losing week since May. More on the markets and your money in just a moment. Right now to some of your other top stories happening on this Monday. Contessa is back with those. Contessa. Brian, good morning. We're seeing an about face in Southern California. Los Angeles putting a new mask mandate in place, hoping to reverse a recent spike in COVID cases there. Everyone in L.A. County is now once again required to wear face coverings indoors, regardless of their vaccination status. Other counties in California are also strongly urging people to wear masks inside, but they have stopped short of making it a requirement. One of the GOP's lead negotiators on the bipartisan infrastructure bill says lawmakers have now dropped a plan to boost IRS enforcement as a way to pay for the infrastructure plan. Senator Rob Portman says the idea had become a point of contention among Senate negotiators. And Monday morning, deal news. Zoom is buying cloud call center provider 5.9 for $14.7 billion. That's about $228, uh, $200 dollars 28 cents per share a 13 percent premium to friday's close this by the way is zoom's biggest acquisition ever and it's the second biggest tech deal we've seen this year and one more item that i should note here brian it is a momentous occasion today i just wanted to note that it's your birthday i've been told 50 so we are what like the starting mark for the second half although brian You know, researchers say the first person to live to 150 has already been born. So it could be the start to like the second two thirds. Maybe it's you. Maybe you will be the person to live to 150. Uh, Well, first off, thank you to you and the team, everybody out there and Jason, Evan, uh, Angeli, Andrew, Adam, Kate. Ralph, Eric, everybody who, who makes the show happen every day, I just want to say thank you to everybody for that. Yeah, I don't know if I want to live to a buck fifty, um, but you know, I, I feel like it doesn't feel that different, right? It's kind of a scary number, but I woke up, of course, OPEC blew up the weekend, but I woke up this morning and I thought, it's not too bad. Did doesn't it feel like it did yesterday? I mean, forty nine and fifty kind of feel the same. It kind of it kind of does. It kind of does, except for that 245 or whatever alarm. But otherwise, Contessa, thank you very much. I appreciate well, that to you and, and you everybody on the day. team. Thank you, Contessa. Appreciate that, everybody. All right. A little blushing here, not going to lie. All right, let's get back now to that key market story surrounding OPEC+. Plus. The group securing a new production deal during yesterday morning's last-minute meeting. Happy Sunday to us. OPEC Plus also allowing the UAE and four other countries to raise their baseline production numbers. But this agreement was about so much more than that. Let's talk about it with somebody else who was up nice and early on a Sunday morning. And I believe might also be celebrating a major birthday soon. (laughs) Our friend, how about that for a Sunday surprise, Salima? We're on like a Zoom call at 7 a.m. on a Sunday with OPEC. Yes, I know. But I think this was a really important meeting. As you said, Brian, I mean, they came together. They've come up with a gradual production increase plan. But what was really important was the group signaled that they're not breaking up anytime soon. That had been a big fear over the market for the past 17 days, that we would have another rerun of what we saw last March when the group couldn't reach an agreement and they essentially put their barrels on the markets in huge quantities. So the band is staying together for now. I mean, yes, we've had a sell-off today, but ultimately I think this is a constructive agreement for the market. 
And it was really, number one, it was a love fest because, and you also had yes. the UAE's representative, Suhail Mazrui. He was on the call, and he normally is not on these virtual, of course, in person he is, but he hasn't been profiled in these virtual meetings over the last year. He was on the entire call. He took questions from me, from you, from others. And it was really, we're committed. We're committed. We're yes. friends. I mean, that's why it's a little surprising to see OPEC's or oil's reaction this morning, because that risk of the every nation for itself does seem to be off the table for now, Halima. No, it absolutely is off the table. And again, I was so struck by the UAE oil minister's continual, like, we are back together. We're not breaking up. We love each other. This is all great. I mean, this was a renewal of OPEC plus vows. Normally, you'd have the Russian oil minister on, but he basically just sent a note basically saying, I'll do whatever you want, Prince of Belize. I'm good with everything. So it was a universal love fest for OPEC yesterday. I do think there are obviously lingering concerns about Delta variants. You know, is this too many barrels being put on the market? I mean, we think the market can absolutely absorb the additional 400,000 barrels per month. But obviously, we're we'll watching the COVID story because that is the sort of bearish story out there in the market. But this is a constructive agreement. It is. And, and to your point, what are you seeing on demand, Halima? Because I know 400,000 barrels seems like a lot of oil to most people, but for a global market that ingests nearly 100 million a day, it's not even a half a percent. I mean, U.S. demand is going like gangbusters. I mean, this is really what is driving demand in this market. I mean, inventories seasonally have fallen to the lowest level since 2003. So this is a market that's being supported by the U.S., by U.S. drivers. I mean, there has been some recent softness in Chinese buying, but we continue to see strong refinery runs there. Even in India, which has been hit so hard by COVID, there are signs that end user demand for oil is picking up. So the market does look like it can absolutely take these barrels. And I think what is really important, Brian, is, as the Saudi oil minister said, we meet every month now. If there is a market development that is bearish, we can reverse this increase. We can pause the increase. They have maximum flexibility to be able to deal with this market. And that's why this agreement is important, because they stay yeah. together to the end of 2022, and they will continue to meet every month and adjust as needed. The, the, the questions that, that we get from viewers and I get on Twitter and social media or just in public, people say, well, what's the U.S. going to do? Are U.S. producers going to start to produce more barrels because oil's at 70 once again? And they're going to drive down the price. And, you know, when I look at the numbers, I don't necessarily see it happening only because a lot of companies are hedged out in the mid 50s. They're not profiting 25 and 30 bucks a barrel. They're not they don't have the capital to really ingest. And we've got our RBI, by the way, is on just this later on. What do you think will happen with U.S. producers, Halima? I mean, I think we're going to see, you know, modest growth of U.S. production next year. I mean, these companies are still remaining very disciplined. And so we will actually really need those U.S. barrels. And so I think what is interesting is, you know, a couple of years ago, we, all the stories was shale is going to kill the rally. And I don't think U.S. production is going to kill the rally this year. I think we're actually going to need those barrels next year. So this is not a story where shale, I think, is going to spoil the party. That's always been the big Russian concern. I think the biggest concern was, would OPEC break up and we'd have 5.8 million barrels just thrown onto the market? That has basically been tabled for now. And it certainly has with that Sunday meeting and uh, a lot of you know, words like we're committed, we're friends, <laughs> we're all together. 
Lee McCroft, you are committed. You are friends. And we appreciate you coming on nice and, and early today. You got up early Friday yesterday. <laughs> Thank you very much. Happy I know birthday. yours is coming up as well, Halima. So happy early yes. birthday, too, my friend. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Coming up. It is, I know, I'm getting a little, because ah, it's just the hour. All right. It's not just oil. Lumber getting whacked as well. So why aren't builders seeing a lot of big savings? Diana Olick is here with the answer coming up. Plus, from autos to smartphones, nearly every industry is still dealing with the global semiconductor shortage. We'll talk about what it could all mean for chip stocks and your investments in them. Coming up, Dow Futures off 300. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back. We are seeing stock futures there down about 329. NASDAQ futures off about four tenths of a percent. Oil under 70. Crypto down across the board as well. Bond yields at 1.27%. So there's a lot of stuff in the red this morning. But one big thing that remains red hot is housing. It is soaring nearly everywhere as builders simply can't build homes fast enough. This morning, we get a big read on that with the monthly sentiment numbers. Now, they hit a record high at the end of last year, but recently have actually been falling a little bit lately, all despite continued demand for strong homes. Let's find out why. Diana Olick joining us now with more on that. Diana, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, home builder sentiment is down from its record high at the end of last year, with builders blaming higher costs and declining availability for softwood lumber. Lumber prices are down over 50 percent in the past two months, but experts say the savings are not trickling down to builders or consumers yet, and the cost of other building materials continues to skyrocket. Lumber still up nearly 100 percent from the spring of last year, and OSB, which is engineered wood for panels, up 325% year over year due to supply chain issues. Now, while lumber prices may fall in the futures market, doesn't necessarily translate immediately to a home builder. The price of lumber packages quoted to home builders is still at a record high, that according to NAHB economist David Logan. Prices paid by builders, or street price, were sticky, he said, because of the dealer's carrying costs and the very large differences between the price at which inventory is bought and sold. Retailers, of course, want to buy their product low and sell high, so they're still selling the inventory they have at higher prices, despite what the futures market says. Also, given soaring demand and supply chain issues, their inventory is low anyway, so why would they lower prices? One supplier in Massachusetts told us they're still in, quote, price discovery mode. So when do builders and remodelers and homeowners get relief? Well, once mill prices have substantially decreased for a while and stabilized, prices have to fall for a long time, enough to materially lower the supplier's average costs after the epic run-up that we just saw. Brian? This is a really important point that you're making as well. So the idea being, if you're a potential home buyer out there, particularly a newly built home, and you watch CNBC and you see us say, well, don't worry, lumber prices have crashed. That does not mean your prices are going to go down that you pay, correct? That's just the futures market. Exactly. And it's just what you said in the beginning, which is that the builders have such a high backlog. They have so many homes that they've actually already sold and haven't even started yet, that their prices are still going to be very high. And again, costs for other materials are also pretty high as well. So the consumer is really not going to see it. And of course, if you're remodeling, you're not going to see it trickle down to you quite yet. And one more thing to note, Brian, take it from somebody who knows everything becomes more fabulous after 50. Happy birthday. 
Thank you very much, Diane Oak. I appreciate that. And I think you're right, by the way. I feel that way. I feel optimistic. Diana, thank you very much. Have a great day. All right. Well, from housing to another red hot sector, and that is semiconductors. Taiwan Semi signaling last week it plans to build new factories in America and Japan, all in a bid to meet the post-pandemic led surge in demand on semis. Pretty much everything, except for maybe lumber, has a semiconductor in it these days. All this around some reports that Intel is in talks to buy semiconductor manufacturer Global Foundries in a potential blockbuster $30 billion deal. For more now on the group, let's bring in Patrick Ho, analyst at Stiefel Nicholas covering the semiconductor sector. Uh, Patrick, I drive by car lots and the car lots are empty because they can't get new cars because they can't get the semiconductors to make new cars. At the macro level, do you see any easing on this supply-demand imbalance anytime soon? Uh, first, good morning, and I'll throw in a happy birthday for you too, Brian. Uh, as far as your question you. in terms about uh, the improvements in the semiconductor marketplace, I think this shortest crunch will last at least through the end of this year and probably into 2022. I think the thing that investors have to remember is as these companies are adding capacity, whether it's TSM, whether it's Intel getting into the foundry marketplace, uh, the capacity doesn't come on right away. You have to buy the equipment, get it installed, qualify, and that takes a little bit of time. So I think the shortage situation will persist at least through the end of this year, probably into 2022. You think Intel is going to make that deal, Patrick, for global foundries? Wow, that's that's hard to say. What what I would say is I think it would be a good synergistic fit for Intel, given its strategic vision of going into the foundry market or actually re-entering it. Uh, what I would say is I have a lot of confidence in CEO Pat Gelsinger's strategy, and I believe him bringing back some of the kind of the old tactics and the old strategic vision of Intel of having both process technology leadership and manufacturing prowess, that'll make their foundry business better this time around. Adding global foundries would not only add capacity to the industry, but allow it to participate in certain markets where they're not yeah. particularly strong today. Computers are obviously where they're the strongest, but then to get into the automotive and into the smartphone yeah. market, global foundries would uh, be a good fit for Intel there. You know, it's a bit of a confusing world because you've got, you know, chip makers, you've got foundries, you've got designers, you've got equipment manufacturers. You know, we like to just kind of lump them together, but they all do different things. Sometimes they're complementary, sometimes they're not. In your recent note, you said any kind of a deal for global foundries would benefit an applied materials or maybe a KLA 10 core. Why? What is it about the equipment manufacturers that would benefit from consolidation at that level? Yeah, in, in my view, the biggest beneficiaries would be the equipment makers. And I believe they're at the early stages of a, a growth trajectory, a kind of secular growth thesis. And the reason for that is we're seeing kind of an arms race that's being driven by more and more semiconductor demand. You mentioned automotive. That's only one of the marketplaces. You have data centers, high-performance computing, and a lot of other marketplaces that require semiconductors. And today, we don't have enough capacity. Well, the biggest beneficiaries are going to be some of the largest equipment companies, like an Applied Materials, like a KLA, 
that will be able to supply a lot of these chip makers with the capacity that's needed to meet the increasing demand. Patrick Ho, Stiefel Nicholas on some big potential stories in a sector that, I mean, it impacts everything from cars to literally can openers at this point. And, and Patrick, also, by the way, thank you for the birthday wishes. Do appreciate that. Thank you. All right, coming up, RBC's Amy Wu Silverman on why she's recommending something called stock replacements. We'll find out what that is. Plus, your morning RBI, it's all about oil and a big question on whether history will repeat itself with American producers drilling more and potentially crashing prices again. A survey you got to hear. And a reminder, if you haven't already, be sure to follow our podcast. It's called Worldwide Exchange. It's on all the platforms. Dow Futures, they're down 300. But we're glad you're up with us. We're back right after this. Well, today's RBI has to do with one of your top stories. That is oil. We've told you about the OPEC deal to increase production. If you missed it, they're going to add about 400,000 barrels a day to global production. That sounds like a lot. But is it? Not really. Demand is seen jumping by a million or two barrels of oil per day going into next year. That is, assuming new government lockdowns over COVID variants do not hit. Well, if oil prices rise, there is some concern that American producers will begin to do what they always have done and surge production, thus crashing prices. Now, that could happen. But according to a recent survey, it seems unlikely. The Dallas Federal Reserve recently had a survey, and they said this, quote, We have relationships with approximately 400 institutional investors and close relationships with 100. Approximately one is willing to give new capital to oil and gas investment. Think about that. One in a hundred or more. So basically one percent or fewer would fund new exploration for oil and gas companies right now if they needed outside funding. Think about that. One out of a hundred, because many of these companies are hedged in the $50 range. So remember, they're not going to capture a lot of price upside. In other words, there simply may not be a lot of money floating around Texas to pay for a bunch of new drilling. Time will tell, but it sure is random but interesting and maybe will lead to higher prices if demand continues to go up. Well, there doesn't appear to be a lot of demand for the equity markets this morning. Dow futures off 300 and joining us now to talk more about this, the near term and something called stock replacements is Amy Wu Silverman of RBC Capital Markets. And before we get to that, Amy, and again, like I said to a guest at the top, I know you're big macro, longer term. You're not a a day trader. But is there anything you're seeing on your screens or your headlines this morning that is screaming Dow futures down 300? I'm not going to lie. I have no idea why futures are off 300. Yeah, now it's a good question. And when I was checking my screens this morning, I will tell you the one thing I thought was really interesting is I was looking at the companies that are reporting just for this week. And where is the most bullish options sentiment in in all the stocks reporting this week? There's really only one, and it's Netflix. And what is Netflix part of? It's part of this broader, you know, fangman basket, which is essentially the only small cohort that still has positive option sentiment kind of during this whole sell-off. And I think that's interesting because it's very, you know, August 2020 deja vu in terms of the playbook of just going back to your really secure mega cap tech 
growthy names. Uh, that's where we see the bullish options sentiment. Everywhere else, it is quite bearish. You know, and you're bringing up an incredibly important point, and I am not going to toot this show's own horn, but I will say for the last few years, you and I and a number of other guests, Amy, we have talked about this sort of amorphous concept of market structure, how options are certainly driving so much of what we are seeing. And your point is very well taken, that it appears, for whatever reason, the sentiment has swapped to the negative on many of these big options. But do we know why? that sentiment may have shifted. Yeah, you know, I think, look, it's part of the whole rotation and re-rotation theme. You know, we, we joked kind of in the weeks leading up to this week that this was one of the really most unloved rallies you've ever seen. And the reason I say that, Brian, is because equity skew, so this demand pickup and hedges, was essentially reaching all-time highs. So even, you know, at the point where the market was going higher and higher, people wanted more and more downside protection to the point where we were actually at kind of levels that were even surpassing the height of the pandemic last year, which I found really staggering. Um, And you're starting to see that actually play out now. And so what do people do, right? They go away from these kind of value cyclical names, names that are kind of dependent on the reopening trading. They go back to their favorites, which is, you know, these COVID-19 safety names, the apples of the world, the Netflix, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, There's one nuance that I'd like to point out that I think is very different this time around, which is. The other momentum names, so your, you know, Kathy Wood Arc Fund or your Tesla, which was very, very correlated last year, these have completely broken down. So it's really just your Apple's, Amazon's, Mega Cap Tech. It's no longer the, you know, Tesla's and Arcs and the other momentum names. And I think that's fascinating because it really shows a flight to safety. Yeah, and, and and it's probably a positive because Tesla had been, as we have said, is not only uh, one of the most important stocks in America, maybe the most important stock because of all the options and derivative and Delta One and all these other strategies around that name. Really important points about market structure and options. Amy Wu Silverman's why we have you on. You laid it out. Appreciate it, Amy. Thank you. Thanks. All right, you're welcome. With that, we wrap it up here on a very busy Monday Worldwide Exchange. Squawk and the gang will pick up the coverage next. I'll see you to talk more oil as well. Dow futures off 309. And we are back right after this. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.